0: Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hawaii Kai Church, and thank you for joining us in worship on this New Year's Eve. And I invite you to take out your Bible, or a Bible underneath the chair in front of you, and turn to the book of Luke. And we are in Luke chapter 21 and verse 5, as we continue our study through Luke. Luke chapter 21, verses 5 through 24, is our passage today. And that passage can be found on page 880, if you are using a church Bible, page 880. Luke chapter 21 and verse 5, and while you're turning there, I do want to give a plug to the Bible reading plan. I encourage you to pick one up on the way out and read along with us, and and in about 15 to 20 or so minutes a day, by the end of the year, you will have read through the entire Bible little by little every day. You know, my own life, uh, uh, early on, I was a believer, I was a Christian, I went to church, I went to Bible study and all of these things, but I just didn't read my Bible with any kind of regularity, And, and I didn't even think to do so. And when that discipline uh, was formed within me by God's grace and through a variety of people, uh, it made such a a massive difference in my life so much so that I can't uh, quite explain the whole of it. But I only knew that difference after it had already occurred over time and, and until we're on this side looking back on the other side. We just don't realize how powerful the Word of God can be in the life of the individual until it actually does happen. And then our church's life changes as well, for as we change, the community gets lifted up at the same time, our families, our marriages, our contentment, perspective, everything. Now, I know it may be daunting to read the Bible, and if that's you just uh, intimidated by any kind of reading plan, please just try and and read the New Testament portion. Uh, Maybe the Psalms and Proverbs with it as well, and that will take less minutes, and it's entirely okay to start with just that part, as long as uh, we're consistent. And if you do find yourself getting behind after a great start, you miss a few days, and then you feel this obligation to catch up, it's okay. You don't have to catch up. Just pick up on the current day and start again. There's no shame. We're, we're not trying to be perfectionists here. We just want to get better and to know him more uh, than we did the day prior. And to develop within our, our lives patterns and spiritual disciplines in places where there may not have been. And so I encourage you to begin to build the habit of reading the Bible daily, and you can pick up a booklet on the way out, and you can also go to our website. I think the daily reading's on our website every day. And so um, please, I encourage you to do just that. Now, with that being said, Luke chapter 21 and verse 5, and before we look at the text together, would you please join me in prayer? Oh, Father, we thank you for this time of worship. And as we come before your word, would you please do mighty things in each of our hearts through it? Only you can do that. Would you give us wisdom, perspective, a zeal for you, which you, by the Holy Spirit, uh, make Jesus Christ so beautiful to us that that everything else might pale in comparison to Him. It's in His name we pray. Amen. We come to Jesus' final set of public teaching before His betrayal, His trial, and His crucifixion. This is the last word from His lips to those who are willing to listen and which we will cover in two sermons. But there's a a gravity in these passages that we may not be used to, a, a seriousness that feels very weighty, that with the cross before him and the people in front of him, Jesus speaks about what is going to come in the immediate future for them, as well as what is to come before the end of time. There's both the short and the long term in view here. And the thrust of his teaching is how we ought to live our lives. we ought to think, what kind of perspective we must have in anticipation of these very things. Jesus' goal here is not so much trying to predict the end as much as it is how we ought to live in light of the end. And there are three areas I want to highlight. Uh, One is the discernment we need. Uh, Secondly, the witness we have. And lastly, the gravity we feel, uh, which gives to us perspective. And so we begin in verse 5. And while some were speaking of the temple how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings. He said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, see that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name saying, I am he. And the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. How ought we to live our lives in light of the end? First, we must live with wisdom and with discernment. We we shouldn't be wowed by things that Jesus is not wowed by, nor led astray by false Messiah-type figures and not to be terrified even when terrifying things do happen. And that's a lot of knots. There's a lot of negatives there. But I think it's because we're prone to lean in a certain kind of way of being wowed by the things that Jesus is not wowed by, of following charismatic and convincing leaders and of being fearful when things are not the way that we hope they would be. And the scene and the context here is that the people around Jesus are impressed with this fancy building. And it's not like this is just any building or a friend's house that just got remodeled or, or that open house that you visited in the area that you can't afford This is 172,000 square yards of temple grounds at this point. 50 years into its construction. For perspective, Costco is about 13,000 square yards. This is 172,000. The retaining walls alone are 80 feet high. There are rows of columns with massive girth, and it has taken 10,000 construction workers and 1,000 oxen about five decades just to get it to this point. Parts of the temple are covered in gold plates, and where there isn't gold, there would be bright marble, sheer white. And so from a distance, you would literally see this temple sparkling in the rays of the sun. The building itself, adorned with costly stones. The sheer size of some of the foundational blocks, 415 tons. 45 feet by 10 feet by 10 feet. The average car, between 1 and 5 tons. Each of these structural blocks scream permanence. I mean, Herod's temple was an architectural masterpiece that would take another 30 years or so to be completed. In every pilgrimage, the people of Israel would see the progress that had been made throughout the year. And here it is that people are taking in the site, and they can't imagine anything more spectacular than what they are currently seeing. And Jesus says, as a matter of fact, it's all coming down. Not even one stone will be left upon another. The people see a fancy building that oozes opulence, power, permanence. Jesus sees a place where people like to wear long robes and say long prayers because they care more about the facade than they do the heart of religion. They see gold and fine gems. Jesus sees a house of prayer turned into a den of robbers. Just because something appears to be magnificent doesn't mean that it is. And the discernment that we need in these times recognizes that, that all that glitters is not gold. I mean, who has impressed Jesus the most in this last week of his life thus far? You look at verses one through five of the same chapter. It's a poor widow who gave her last two coins in wholehearted worship to God, a widow who no one else seems to notice but him, and of whom he declares, she put in more than all of them. The Lord doesn't have the same eyes that we so commonly have. First Samuel 16, 7, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. You know, we don't, we don't follow a Savior who is all that impressed with externals. And the strength of the church is not to be found in, in magnificent buildings and in huge numbers. You know, the material part of the church is actually the least important part of it. But what is beautiful and lasting is the genuine worship within the hearts of those who are truly is. First Peter two says, with Jesus Christ as a cornerstone, we are the living stones. That's a real building. This is J.C. Ryle, the dens and caves in which the early Christians used to meet were far more beautiful in the eyes of Christ than the noblest cathedral that was ever reared by man. The temple in which the Lord delights most is a broken and contrite heart renewed by the Holy Spirit. And so part of the discernment God's people ought to have within them is not being wowed by the things that Jesus isn't wowed by. And the discernment we are called to have is also not to be led astray by false Messiah-type figures. You know, when there appears to be this lack of stability in the world and a note of of uncertainty within each of our lives, and with things like wars occurring in various places, uh, we're going to naturally tend to want to grasp for some kind of security. We want to put our trust into something and into someone who appears to be particularly confident and unshaken during these very moments that shake us. When we feel vulnerable, we desire someone to make us feel secure. And Jesus knows this and warns us of this, that there will be many who come in his name. And there are going to be people throughout the generations that are going to be appealing to those who feel least secure. That, that this prominent figure and this strong Messiah-type leader, uh, even some who claim to be Jesus themselves, will all be very attractive to a lot of people who, because of what is happening around them, they just want to latch themselves on to someone stronger than them. We, we shouldn't fall for it. I, I mean, there are so many YouTube spiritual gurus nowadays that decipher this code in the Bible or claim this special wisdom in this prophecy, secret knowledge that only they have and whatnot to forecast and look into the future, who are so focused upon what the disciples are focused on here when they ask, when? When will these things be? What is the sign? And there's no shortage to these kinds of leaders who exegete the conflict in the Middle East, the end is near, you must listen to me. And there's a long list of people who just want more clicks and with their well-edited videos, seek to make the people of God more concerned with trying to figure out times and dates and signs by twisting scripture and misusing the Bible rather than the focus being on living our lives with all our might to the task at hand before Jesus Christ returns. You know, I know for some of us, there can be this inquisitive bend. I have that. When it comes to trying to decipher the when. When? that can make us more prone to following certain kinds of leaders whose confidence in their own wayward thinking is attractive to us who are drawn to that very confidence. We must have the discernment not to be led astray by these kinds of peoples and movements. You know, when Jesus returns, there isn't going to be any mistake about it. Luke chapter 17, verse 22. We covered this a while ago. He says to his disciples there, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. Why? For as lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. You know, the coming of Jesus is not going to be found in some secret knowledge in some tiny closet. It's going to be plain as day. And anyone who claims an authority to know insider information as to the when of Christ's return. Brothers and sisters, we mustn't fall for it. You know, we need this kind of discernment in these last days To not be led astray from what matters most. And this discernment and wisdom is also a call to not be terrified, even when terrifying things happen. Notice what Jesus says in verse 9. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. You know, predictive prophecy, conspiracy theories, I think, seem to be gaining popularity uh, because people are full of fear, and, and the internet is just so easy to reach people. Uh, To capitalize on their insecurity and feelings of helplessness. And Jesus here is is seeking to bring comfort to his followers. You're going to hear about wars and tumults. And I'm telling you that these things must first take place. He's telling us beforehand. We have to remember that there is a plan. That's how he can say must. There is a divine decree in which God and God alone is in control. And it's almost as if Jesus is asking us to just simply look into his eyes. Don't look here and don't look here, but look at me. You will hear about all these things. Don't be terrified. These things are supposed to happen. Now, how can he have such peace when he says that? Because he's the one who's in control. You know, uh, church family, we don't have to be fearful even when fearful things occur. The very fact that Jesus knows what must happen is because he is in control of what does happen. And we can take comfort in the fact that even when we hear of crazy things occurring, all of this is under his sovereign care, which transitions us to the next point. We're to live with the wisdom and discernment for sure in light of what is to come, but we are also to live with a fearless witness as well. Verse 10, we continue. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict." You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a head of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. You know, first we're uh, to be called to discernment. And and secondly, here we find Jesus calling his followers to a fearless witness, uh, even amongst fearful events. A fearless witness amongst fearful events, and he's setting the expectations of those who are going to follow him so that they won't be shocked. There's going to be some scary things that will occur, and there are going to be some hard times up ahead. Uh, but also, with all of this drama and chaos happening, it actually is a setting which opens up the door for a more compelling witness and potent evangelism. And again, this is perhaps a gravity that, that we're not used to. nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom. This is geopolitical turmoil. Great earthquakes we've witnessed many in our lifetimes as they did in the first century. Tsunamis as a result of these earthquakes destroying cities. Uh, Famines, pestilences, there's still hunger in the world all over the place. We just had a worldwide COVID event, whatever your take on it. uh, There's no denying the broadness of its impact. But perhaps the most terrifying is what happens personally on a much more intimate level than these worldwide events. And that is particularly uh, the ill treatment that Christians are going to get in the first century, uh, here and also in the centuries to come. And Jesus is very explicit to these people right in front of them. Uh, There will be those who lay hands on you. And they did, violently. There was persecution within Jerusalem. The early church leaders, they'd be pulled out of their teaching, beaten in the streets. The apostles frequently uh, visited jail cells, not for vacation, but because they were chained. And they were made to give testimony in front of the powers that be. But even more intimate than that, which is the people outside of your inner circle, is actually the people within the inner circle. That the ones you trust most are going to turn on you. Jesus says you'll be delivered up by even parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. I mean, it's one thing to be handed over by cold authority. It's entirely another to be handed over by the family who raised you, and the siblings who shared so much with you, and the friends who used to have your own back to the point that your life is shortened because of your devotion to Jesus. It happened then. It happens today. I mean, especially in the Muslim world now where your own family will try to kill you if you convert to Christianity. Again, Jesus says, "'You will be hated by all for my namesake.'" I mean, there's no other way to exegete those words to make them mean something else. I can't think of a bleaker picture than what Jesus is painting here. You got world wars, you got earthquakes, pandemics, famines, hated by all, even mom and dad, brother and sister, best man and maid of honor. And if that graphic depiction were the entire story, we'd simply assume that the movement of Jesus Christ would be halted very shortly. But here's the craziest thing, I think that with everything working against the cause of Christ and against his people, that that is when the cause of Christ goes out further. And the church is going to be given a strange opportunity during this trying time. Jesus says, settle therefore in your minds, not to meditate before and how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. I mean, I think about the phraseology of that. I'm gonna give you a mouth and wisdom. And there we're reminded of just who it is that is on our side, the one who created the mouth, the personification of wisdom himself. I mean, if you have time to peruse the book of Acts, you will find these formerly fearful disciples somehow giving these eloquent responses to the very ones who persecute them. You'll find Peter, who's going to famously deny Jesus three times, later preaching to the masses with such clarity and power, and with such strength, he can fearlessly respond to those who seemingly have his life in their hands. Acts five twenty nine. we got to obey God rather than men to those who are telling him to stop talking about Jesus. We find Stephen giving this irrefutable lesson on the nation of Israel right before he has stones thrown at him to end his life. We find massive persecution in Jerusalem which scatters Christians all throughout ancient Palestine and they just happen to take the gospel with them to these new lands they flee to. We have one of the worst haters of Jesus and the gospel in Saul of Tarsus and Jesus appears to him and converts even the worst of them into this apostle sent to the Gentiles. And I think it is sometimes that we forget just how supernatural the cause of Jesus Christ truly is. We get so locked into these boardrooms and strategy meetings and asking the question how do we stay relevant in a world that is now post Christian? How do we maintain our witness in the midst of the sexual revolution of expressive individualism, hyper individualism? How do we minister in a time where our very convictions are interpreted as bigotry and hate and where morality has shifted almost entirely? we get so locked into trying to outthink the field and strategize for what will be the most potent. When the mantra of the greatest missionary in the first century had always been, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God, 1 Corinthians 1.23. I think it is sometimes that we feel That that everything has to be perfect before we say a peep about Jesus. That somehow, just simple witness cannot happen until the environment is right, relationship is established, and all the stars have to align into this perfect way before we can say anything. That evangelism is not going to be effective unless it's smooth and easy. World wars, earthquakes, famines, pestilences, family and closest friends betraying you. That's not the stars of lying. And yet, you don't even have to think about what you're gonna say. Because Jesus Christ himself will give us a mouth and wisdom which cannot be contradicted nor withstood. And that doesn't mean pastors and Sunday school teachers and small group leaders and the like shouldn't prep before their lessons. But it means at the end of the day, even if we find ourselves in a jail cell where we cannot prepare, that that preparation is not ultimately where the power lies. But our power lies in Jesus Christ giving to us what we need to be a witness for him. I mean, how is it that we can be fearless in the midst of the most fearful things imaginable? Because Christ Jesus himself is with you. And he can somehow make the worst environment, the very context for his most potent testimony, that somehow it is the more opposition we suffer, the better our opportunities may actually be. And here is, we find that old key principle of the faith. I mean, you think of things like wars and natural disasters and ruined relationships. I mean, when things are out of your control, these are the very scenarios where any semblance of power you think you have, any feelings of control you think you have, They're gone. And the people you normally turn to, they aren't there for you. And you find yourself resourceless, you find yourself helpless, and yet it's there that we find true power. It's that power which is made perfect in weakness, 2 Corinthians 12.10. For when I am weak, then I am strong. It's a total dependence and trust in Jesus. And oftentimes, we frankly just don't get there until we're stripped of everything but Jesus. Now brothers and sisters, the whole world can be on fire, and let the Lord can use all of this for His own glory. It can be hard to imagine being faithful and under such extreme circumstances, but the Lord will give you the grace necessary to do just that in our hour of great need. And then we have this comfort given from his lips, which fuels that same fearlessness. He says, "But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives." And I think it's interesting how Jesus says, it's not a hair of your hair will perish, even though the phrase right before that, it says, some of you, they'll put to death. It's like, so I die, but my hair looks good? (laughs) Is that supposed to be my comfort? I mean, obviously, that's not what Jesus means. You know, brothers and sisters, we may lose our reputations. We may lose our jobs. We may lose our family and lose our friends. We may lose freedoms. We may even lose our physical lives. But we will never lose Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Whatever we may go through, our lives are hidden in them. Our souls can never be ultimately harmed. Our treasure can never be robbed for it is in heaven with him and not even a single hair of our own heads will ultimately perish. You know, Stephen, um, the church's first martyr, he was dying as stones were being thrown at him. And in Acts 7.55, he's full of the spirit there and he gazes into heaven and he sees the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And there's this clarity for him in that moment of his death, in that moment where he should be most panicky, he sees Jesus more than he has ever experienced him before. And with that, uh, Stephen is capable of crying out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. It's weird in these moments with Christ in view, uh, he's been able to portray this very heart of Christ most powerfully, that I want even my murderers to be saved and forgiven. And there's a certain indestructibility to the Christian. For we're going to be preserved. And we, by his grace, we will endure. And so we need discernment, absolutely. And we also need here to live with a fearless witness for Christ is with us. And lastly, thirdly, we must live feeling the gravity of judgment. Verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. You know, there's a a gravity we ought to feel in the face of judgment upon those who reject Jesus. There's a weight that we shouldn't lift the whole of it off of our shoulders when we think about those who refuse to come to him. Jesus here, he has a more immediate future in mind and he again displays his perfect knowledge of what is to come. And there's gonna be a war in Jerusalem of which will begin in 66 and which would end in 70 AD where Jerusalem is gonna be surrounded by Roman armies and it will be destroyed. And some of the historical accounts of what is going to occur during this war is absolutely horrendous. The people are gonna be decimated, bodies mutilated, many crucified, most starved, Rome will completely shut off their ability to acquire supplies because they surrounded them to suffocate them, so much so that there are written accounts of cannibalism. And when all is said and done, every man, woman, and child would either be killed or taken captive. And Herod's temple, which would have just been completed, will be brought down to the ground, not one stone left upon another. Why? Because Israel, God's covenant people, privileged among the nations, blessed more than anyone else with revelation. They utterly and wholly reject the Son of God, Israel's Messiah, and they are responsible for Jesus' crucifixion, even when His heart was for them. Luke 13, 34, Jesus expresses the longing for His people. O oh, Jerusalem, O oh, Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you would not. When Jesus rides into Jerusalem the last time, what does he do? He weeps over it. Luke 19, 21. Would that you, even you, had known this day the things that make for peace. You know, judgment occurs not because God is unwilling to receive his people, but because they are unwilling to receive him. And Jesus is telling those who are willing to listen, flee the judgment that's coming to Jerusalem. Flee the judgment, and ultimately to the rest of the world, flee the judgment that is coming to the world. You know, these kinds of passages are, are always difficult for me to preach, and we don't see these kinds of texts uh, all that frequently. And I think that's because the Lord is so long-suffering that He doesn't always uh, bring quickly the judgment uh, that we are due. We don't always see these kinds of passages because of His patient mercy. But what they can do in in each of us sometimes is to cause us to forget the gravity uh, of sinful human rejection uh, against Jesus. We dismiss the sinfulness of sin we put it in the back of our minds, the judgment that is inevitably going to come. And that infrequency can sometimes dull us uh, to the Great Commission at hand. And I think we're often not used to passages like this because we frankly just aren't used to thinking about the judgment all that often, so much so that we forget the reality of it. And we can't. We can't forget the reality of it. And neither does Jesus. You know, as he laments what is going to happen in Jerusalem, as he warns his people to flee, Uh, and as he laments ultimately what is going to happen to a world that rejects him. Remember, he's just days away from the cross. You know, judgment is not a thing that Jesus has the luxury of forgetting about. And judgment is not a thing that is just reserved for those people. No, judgment is a thing that he is going to take upon himself in the place of his people. The just for the unjust. The holy one crucified in the place of the sinful ones. And as Jesus explicitly talks about the destruction that is coming to Jerusalem, I mean, there's a destruction that he is going to undertake himself. The wrath of God upon the cross is going to be much more massive than what will happen in Jerusalem during her destruction at this single point in time. What he will endure is the most suffering that creation will ever witness. We don't have this hardened savior at all. No, we have a one who's been tempted in every way we are and yet is without sin. You know, we don't have a Lord in an ivory tower, judge them all. No, we have our Lord in these moments, judge me, pour your wrath on me and not them. And we are given a reminder in texts like these of what our sin deserves and yet undergirding all of that, what our Savior does for us. And this massive love that he has for us who least deserve it. That even in these texts of judgment, there, there is this gospel. But at the same time, there's this love of which, when it is refused, is the most heinous thing imaginable. And it will be met with a judgment appropriate for it, even when by mercy it is delayed we must not delay in coming to him. And so this passage is ultimately not about trying to calculate dates and discern the times. No, it's about how we ought to live in light of these things. We must have discernment. We must live with a fearless witness for Christ is with us. And we must live very soberly, feeling the gravity of it all in a clarifying way as to what ultimately and truly matters. Would you please pray with me? Uh, Father, would you please grant your church the grace necessary to put first things first and make Jesus Christ beautiful in our eyes and sinfulness, wretchedness to us. I pray that you would use our church family in mighty ways to bring people to come to know you. Would you give us great joy in salvation? Would you help us to experience your love without end? It's in his name we pray, amen. Amen.